Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. By the way, as you read the Bible, the temple, the tabernacle, all those Old Testament things are pictures of the real temple. Okay, the real tabernacle, the real place where man can meet God. We can come into the Holy of Holies, not through some literal veil, but through the real veil that separated us, that mighty gulf that God did span. Welcome to Abide in the Word with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Today, we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Scott brings a message titled, He Bore Our Sins. We invite you to follow along with us now as we get started. The great measure of God's love is not how things are going in your life right now. And the testimony or witness or demonstration of his love is not that he promises to keep you from trouble. No, the demonstration of God's love is that he did not keep his beloved son from trouble, but allowed the iniquity of us all to be placed on him. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, the love that drew salvation. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Grace, something we could never earn or deserve. And I hope each of you know his love, that God loves you personally, and the proof of it is the gift of his Son. And his grace, something you could never earn or deserve. Paul said, and I've been thinking about this because I'm teaching Paul's message to the Ephesian elders on Sundays right now out of Acts 20. And Paul said, my whole thing is to finish what God has given me to testify solemnly of the good news, the gospel of the grace of God. Something I could never do for myself, God did. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf, an insurmountable gulf that God did span at Calvary. William Newell penned those words. I don't know when he wrote them, but I know that he was born 150 years ago this year, 1868. And somewhere in his young life, his early days after the Civil War, this truth gripped him. And I've been talking about the last few weeks, Billy Graham and the impact he had on our culture and the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, D.L. Moody, Dwight Lyman Duty, Moody, uh, had similar impact in both Britain and America during the 19th century. And he was an evangelist, uh, but he also had a lot of, you know, spinoffs out of his life. And in 1896, when Newell was 28 years old, he commissioned William Newell. He said, you take this and you preach this gospel, not as an evangelist, but as a Bible teacher. He kind of laid hands on him as an itinerant Bible teacher. And William Newell, the one who wrote that poem, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. William Newell 
used to teach the Bible at noon hour in St. Louis in a uh, theater. And then he'd get on a train, and I don't know what day of the week it was, but let's just say he taught the Bible on Monday at noon for business people in St. Louis. Then he'd get on a train in those days and ride to Chicago and teach again at noon hour in a theater in Chicago. And then he'd get on another train, and on Wednesday, he'd teach in Detroit. And on Thursday, he'd take the train, probably on Wednesday afternoon, to Toronto and teach the Bible. And uh, he came here in Portland uh, as late as 1956, and a friend of his told me, and I was thinking how this spans the generations, that when he got off the train over here at Union Station, he met him, and they went to the old hotel over there, and Newell ordered salmon. You know, he was out in the Northwest, middle, uh, middle uh, Midwest guy, and he wanted salmon. But he was so old at that point, he was 88. And he was so old that he said, he sat there, and I remember him telling me, he just looked at the salmon. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, it's no use, Jack, I can't eat it. He was so sick and so tired at that point in his life. But my friend, who was aged at the time, he said, so I took him to the church, and, and he had a large downtown church in Portland, and uh, sat him on a chair, and he taught the Bible. You know. Well, anyway, I tell that story because that poem really hit me, and knowing who wrote it really hit me, and as I began to think about what could happen at noon hour, that was part of why we started this many years ago, just teaching the Bible at noon hour. And always as we teach the Bible, we say, we want to bring clear Christ-centered Bible teaching. And I want to say this, cross-centered Bible teaching. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span right here. Verse 33 at Golgotha, at Calvary. They gave him wine to drink, mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. The amazing prophecies that are being fulfilled here. There are somewhere between 28 and 31 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in this 24 hours that we're looking at. Psalm 69 said they would give him drink wine or gall to drink wine mixed with gall. And when they'd crucified him, verse 35, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. Psalm 22, written a thousand years earlier, had said they'll gamble over his garments. And sitting down, they began to watch over him there. They just pulled up chairs we saw last week. They were so hardened uh, that they just sat down to watch. These Roman soldiers were, uh, it was an amazing scene to think of them sitting down just to watch. And they put up above his head the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And I pointed out last time that Pilate made this inscription. It was typical when a man was condemned, they'd put it, the charge around his neck and he'd wear it 
up to his point of execution, then they'd nail it to the cross. Everybody knew this is what we do with these kind of people. Well, the charge against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It was true. And they wrote it in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, right there on the main thoroughfare coming into town so that everybody could read it. Uh, everybody could see why they were putting him to death. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Isaiah 53, written about 700 years before, had said that when my suffering one dies, he will be numbered with the transgressors. And, uh, you know, don't think of the cross as religious or something we celebrate at Good Friday and Easter coming up. And, uh, and stop and think, this was an execution of a criminal, and there were criminals on either side of him. He was numbered with the criminals. And those, verse 39, who were passing by were hurling abuse at him wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. The passerbyers, just the casual observers, were wagging their heads. Go read the 22nd Psalm and you'll see this described a thousand years earlier. People sometimes ask me why I believe the Bible is God's word. Because only the Bible, only God could tell these kinds of things in detail. And that's one thought. And the other thought is the fact that he knew where he was sending his son. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that he would do it. That he would send him down to man. And notice what they yelled. You who destroy the temple, verse 40, and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. They didn't forget. Way back at the beginning, three years ago, turn over to John 2. John 2. One of the first things Jesus had said in public, right after his first miracle, he had said... John 2, after he cleansed the temple, remember he came in and said, what are you doing this? The commercialization of the temple, and he cleansed it. And uh, the Jews, verse 18, therefore answered and said to him, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? They knew he had, they knew it was right to cleanse the temple, but they said, who do you think you are? What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple. I mean, it, it was a masterpiece of architecture that Herod had built. It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. By the way, as you read the Bible... The temple, the tabernacle, all those Old Testament things are pictures of the real temple, 
okay? The real tabernacle, the real place where man can meet God. We can come into the Holy of Holies, not through some literal veil, but through the real veil that separated us, that mighty gulf that God did span when he brought Jesus Christ. Christ is, he says, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore, verse 22, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Way back in three years ago, he had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He knew what he was doing, he, and he knew they were going to destroy his body. They were going to crucify him. And he said, in three days, all right. They said, hey, it took us 46 years to build this thing. I mean, you're going to do that in three days? But he was talking about the temple of his body. They didn't get it. I don't know that the disciples even got it until he raised from the dead three days after he was crucified. And they remembered. And they remembered the scriptures and what Jesus had said. And it was a remarkable thing. But look back at our scene now, verse 40. They remembered what he'd said. They were crucifying him because of what he'd said and because of what he'd done. And so as they taunted him, they said, you who are going to build the temple in three days, save yourself. If, look at verse 40. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. May I say it? Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Son of God. He made it very clear. When I introduced Matthew, I pointed out, because I think it's helpful, that Matthew is the Jewish gospel, very Jewish. Uh, God wrote four gospels. And he has a different audience in mind with each gospel. Matthew is the Jewish gospel, so his great emphasis is what we just saw. He's the king of the Jews in Matthew. In Mark, which is written to a Roman audience, he's the servant of the Lord. He has no genealogy. Yeah, who cares what genealogy your servant has? The Romans were interested in action and deliver, delivery, and Jesus came in as the servant of the Lord in Mark. That's the great emphasis of Mark. And in Luke, he's written to a Greek audience. You see this perfect man, the son of man. And Jesus is man the way he was meant to be. When we were reading Peter's uh, epistle and mulling it over yesterday morning, he committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. He is perfection. He's the Son of Man, his humanity. John is the one that emphasizes his deity. He's the Son of God. And from the very beginning, when John the Baptist pointed to him, he said, there he is, this is the Son of God. To the very end, well, look over at John. Look over at John 20. Because I often, people ask me, where would you start in the Bible? I'll tell people, start in John, because he makes it so clear. And he tells you, and I'll often show them, you know, that here's why he wrote his book. John 20, verse 30, many other signs, therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John was very selective as to what he wrote. But these have been written 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I point that out because Jesus made this claim. They understood it. And even in Matthew here, they say, if you're the Son of God, come down from there. Save yourself. And I want to underline that all the Gospels, they're true. And so, yes, they're written to a Jewish audience, a Roman audience, a Greek audience, and John is kind of the universal gospel written to all of us. But they all point out that he's the son of God. You'll see it in Matthew. you see it in Mark. Mark, the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. In Luke, listen to this one, and you hear it if you around Christians, you'll hear this at least at Christmas time. Listen to Luke 1. Mary said to the angel, how, how can this be? You're going to have a son. How can this be? I'm a virgin, she said. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. They knew. Every gospel points it out. They knew. Look in Matthew. Just go back with me to Matthew 8 and watch how many times this shows up, uh, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. The demons knew it. The demons knew it. John 8, or I said John, Matthew. I want to just walk back through Matthew. Matthew 8, verse 29. Behold, they cried out, saying, what do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That was a bunch of demons that were destroying a man's life. They knew who Jesus was. What do we have to do with you, you son of God? Have you come here to destroy us before the time? Oh, they knew. By the way, today, there is no question in the, among the forces of evil, the demonic realm that we entertain ourselves with by watching it on Hollywood's presentations of all the evil. Evil is very real. And the demonic powers of Satan, the fallen angels, they know who Jesus is. There's no question. In fact, my Bible tells me that one day soon, every knee is going to bow before Jesus Christ. Of those in heaven, there's no question in heaven who he is. Of those in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. There's no question in hell. The demons know that he is the Son of God. And they cried out early in his ministry, what have you come to do? Are you going to destroy us before our time? And then look over at Matthew 14. Remember when Jesus came to them? Matthew 14. And he came to them as they were out in that storm on the boat, the disciples. And Peter, you know, you remember the scene when he realized, he said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And Jesus said, come on out here. And Peter took a step on the water. And then he got looking at the waves and the wind. And immediately, verse 31, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly 
God's son. When he took them up in Matthew 16 to that little retreat at Caesarea, he said, what are people saying about me? People are saying lots of things about him. But he said, what do you say about me? And Peter confessed, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. When he was standing before the authorities, they said, are you the son of God? And he said, you've said it yourself. Now as he's hanging on this cross, they're saying, if you're the son of God. By the way, turn just a page, at least in my Bible, look down at verse 54, if you're still in Matthew 27. After he had died, the centurion and those who were with him, these hardened soldiers that had pulled up lawn chairs to watch, so to speak, and been part of the mocking and the spitting, the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly this was the son of God. They taunt him with this. If you're the son of God, by the way, where did you first hear that? Well, actually back in chapter 4 of Matthew. Who was it that said, if you're the son of God, turn these rocks into bread? Who said that? Satan. Don't get yourself, don't catch yourself saying, if you're God, prove yourself. That's satanic. Twice he said it. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Prove it to me. God doesn't have to prove himself to anybody. By the way, he graciously did. Turn over to Romans. Romans. You hear me talk about Romans because it is the explanation of Christianity. Listen to how Paul introduces Romans. He says, the gospel that I'm all about, verse 2, that I've been set apart for, that the Old Testament promised, the gospel, verse 3, concerns his son who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, that's his humanity, who was declared with power to be what? The Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. God marked him out as his Son. He is the Son of God. And those who say, well, if he's the Son of God, prove it. God did. He furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, Acts 17.30 says, that's quoting Paul standing in front of the intellectuals of his day saying, God has furnished proof to all of you by raising him from the dead. I say this because I'm excited as I think about the next few weeks. You know, just like Christmas isn't really seasonal, we celebrate his birth all the time. And we celebrate his resurrection all the time. But still, it's always good to be thinking about what God said when he raised his son from the dead. He proved him to be the son of God. You've been listening to Abide in the Word with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Please stay with us. Pastor Scott will return in just a moment with a preview of our next broadcast. Today's program was titled, He Bore Our Sins, a message from our study of the Gospel of Matthew. If you missed a portion of the message heard on the program today, or you'd like to share it with a friend, head on over to AbideInTheWord.us. A free copy of today's entire message is available there for you to stream or download at your convenience. 
Something we've been making available as a thank you gift for our listeners are USB flash drives loaded with Bible teaching series in their entirety. So currently, we're offering the entire teaching of the Gospel of Matthew. That's 109 full-length messages, over 50 hours of clear, Christ-centered Bible teaching on this important introductory book of the New Testament. We'd like to make these teachings available to you, our listeners. Just make your request, along with your gift of any size, to the ministry of Abide in the Word. You can do that during regular business hours by calling 503-524-7000 or mail at P.O. Box 19191, Portland, Oregon, 97280. You can simply click on Contact Us at AbideInTheWord.us anytime. We'd love to put one of these valuable resources in your hands. We're thankful that you've chosen to listen to us on this station, and we invite you to AbideInTheWord.us to download or listen to any past program or to subscribe to our daily podcast. Now, before we end our time today, let's go to Pastor Scott for a preview of our next broadcast. Well, here this man, dying on this cross, confesses that Jesus is innocent, his righteousness. And then, look at verse 42. He calls on him. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. This is the first salvation at the cross. A man who confesses his sin, confesses Jesus' innocence and righteousness, and cries out to him as Lord, finds him to be what? Ready to save. He still is. Join us again next time as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Scott will bring a message titled, At the Cross. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you.